0: they have acquired the shares of Patron Tequila that they already didn't own. But this is a deal that values Patron at about $5 billion. It's expected to close in the first half of the year. Joining us now in the studio is a uh, co-founder and chairman of the board of John Paul Mitchell Systems and co-founder of Patron Tequila, John Paul DeJoria. Thanks very much for being in the studio. Oh, my
2: friend, always. Always a, a joy interviewing with you.
0: All right, let's just... I want to, get to set the stage because... Let's go back to 1989. You are uh, interested in having a friend of yours bring back a bottle of tequila from Mexico, and he brings back a hand-blown bottle, and you and uh, Martin Crowley? Yes, that's correct. You guys decide, oh, we'll make 12,000 bottles and price them at 37 bucks a bottle.
2: Very, very close. He came back with a couple of bottles of what I said, Martin, when you go down there, bring back whatever the aristocrats drink. So he found these bottles, very slim, good bottles, and it was the smoothest I ever drank. He said, but JP, I met this guy named Francisco Alcaraz, and he could make it even smoother. And then he had this bottle he showed me that was out of blown glass he got in some, uh, uh, you know, gift shop. He says, we could do this. And I said, can we do it out of recycled glass? He goes, yeah. I said, well, what the heck? Let's make 12,000 bottles and, uh, you know, it's going to be very expensive. Well, it was very expensive. We had to sell it for thirty-seven ninety-five 95 in 1989 when the average tequila i think was four or five dollars and the best one around was 14. so we actually started in the united states ultra premium tequila but we thought you know what a great thing a tequila you could sip and not have to put in a margarita of that quality you don't get that big hangover the next day not bad so we wanted to come out with quality we'd be in reorder business it started out very slowly by the way, but then people realized, wow, I want to treat myself. This is really good. And with a lot of friends that kind of pitched in to lend a helping hand, it started to take off and off and off and then zoom. And then unfortunately, uh, oh, back in about 2003, my partner had a little bout and had a heart attack uh, and Ed Brown took over as our president. He was in sales at the time. He should have been the president, great guy. And it went just straight up in the air. It's really a phenomena, but it shows you that America still works. And if you go for high quality in any product and you don't lessen that quality and give people what they really would like, you've got one heck of a chance of making it well. And you keep that quality going. And that's going to happen, by the way, even with the sale to Bacardi. Uh, It's going to happen because they've agreed to keep everything exactly the way it is, keep our staff in place and work with me on philanthropy and the good conditions and the high quality that we have and not step away from it. And you self-funded Patron. Oh yeah, self-funded, totally self-funded.
1: So why did you decide to sell now?
2: Couple of reasons. One, We've taken it where no one's ever gone before with any tequila, let alone ultra premium tequila. We're there. And it was a lot of fun. Well, I'd like to take it to the next stage right now. And someone like Bacardi that has their own, and they've been our distributor in many parts of the world, but now that they have a piece of it, they could double what we're doing right now. And I know that because the product is that good. So I'm excited to see this product that I was the father of continue to grow and grow and grow. Uh, And it's just the ideal time to do it. Uh, I get more involved in my film. Philanthropic work, which I love. And I'm also working on another major, major thing, which we'll announce with you guys another two or three months through, through rock ROK mobile, that is going to change the whole world for the better for all people. So involvement.
1: So uh, I'm just wondering, do you think that it would be harder for an entrepreneur to start a business today than it was back in 1980?
2: No, not at all. I think it's so much easier today because when I started Paul Mitchell in 1980 with $700, inflation in the United States was 12.5%, unemployment 10.5%. If you could get a loan, if you could get a loan, prime rate in 1881 was 17%. I mean, it was very difficult. And we didn't have computers in those days. We didn't. We had to set type to make a business card. So today you can make it, I believe, a lot easier. But the two things you've got to do if you start a business is make sure that your product. Or your service is so darn good you're not in the selling business you're in the reorder business when they get it they would like it so much they want to reorder it make sure that quality is there and at the same time be sure that you could overcome rejection you're going to get a lot of rejection and if you know you're going to get it it's not going to hurt you so much you're not going to give up after 100 doors are slammed in your face like i did when i sold encyclopedias door to door you just keep on going and eventually you're going to get it
0: one of the things you do have, though, is competition. I note that uh, Diageo, right, just <laughs> oh, acquired yeah, a George Clooney's a high-end Casa Amigos uh, uh-huh. tequila brand. I guess that deal was reported to be worth about a billion dollars, uh, valuing Patron at 5.1 billion. That's pretty high, isn't well, it?
2: Well, if if you valued Patron the same way uh, the the group uh, with their and one of them, a couple of our friends find that they were part of the owners with them, uh, if I did it that way, Patron would be. $24 billion right now. So if you go on what you do, the EBITDA and how many cases you sell, but that's just crazy, you know, but because Clooney was involved and I'm, I'm sure they could use it for a lot of publicity to them. It made sense. Uh, I would love to get that, but you know, and but you know, no one's going to pay that kind of big money. However, I think at 5 billion, 100 million, we did extremely well. I'm very, very happy. And uh, as you know, and have said many times for 70% of a me JP, that's a home run.
1: Congratulations!
2: Thank you. I could do a whole lot more to, to help change the world with this.
1: Thank you so much for being with us. It really uh, is fascinating, and I want to hear about selling encyclopedias door to door. and You will start sometime because sure. that's uh, fascinating, and uh, maybe perhaps can be an inspiration for my two little sons. Uh, oh,
2: John, first, John you have
0: to uh, first, you have to explain to them what are encyclopedias. <laughs> you know, exa- yeah,
2: yeah, that's they'll... actually true. Yeah, it is. They're not around anymore. And tell them to watch Good Fortune, the movie. It was just released, you get it on, you know, Amazon, iTunes, whatever, good fortune, the movie, let your kids watch it. Shows you how to go from homeless and no money, no influence, being fired many times, and make it in America. You can still do it in other countries too.
1: John Paul DeJoria, thank you so much for being with us. John Paul DeJoria is billionaire, co-founder and chief executive officer of Paul Mitcher and owner of Patron Spirits, which was just sold to Bacardi.
0: Stocks, gold, and oil are up. Bonds in the U.S. dollar are down. Jim Bianco is the president and founder of Bianco Research. He joins us from Chicago. Jim, always a pleasure. Do you think that the dollar weakness will continue?
3: I think over the very short term it will continue because it's got momentum. It's got the Treasury Secretary. It's got a lot of that going. But I do think we're in the late stages of this move. The dollar's at uh, significant highs. Speculation, you know what we call the crowded trade, is getting pretty frothy right now. Everybody's in this trade. There's not a lot of people that are actually still long the dollar among the speculative categories. In other in words,
1: they're, they're they're long. It's a crowded trade to short sell the dollar, correct?
3: Right. The crowded trade is they're short the dollar or long currencies right now. If you dial up your uh, favorite billionaire at Davos or your favorite hedge fund manager, they're all going to sound the same when it comes to the dollar. It's just going to keep going down. That's why I think it's at the late stages. doesn't mean that today or tomorrow or this week is the high because it's got the momentum going. But it is getting old, this rally,
1: so the currency
3: rally, dollar weakness.
1: What's going to make it strengthen? What's the catalyst? And, and strengthen against which currency? I mean, Which is the important sort of cross to look at? Is it the U.S. euro, the dollar euro, or is it dollar yen?
3: Dollar Bitcoin, yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> is dollar Bitcoin the key indicator that you watch every morning? i uh, I watch
3: it, but it's not yet risen <laughs> to a key indicator yet uh, no, but uh I think one of the things is to your question you're right that what what cross should you be looking at right now because the currencies should have their own cycles, some of them should be going up against the dollar, some of them should be sideways, some of them should be down. but right now, as a sign of the speculative frost, the dollar's going down against pretty much everything um for now you can so I'd look at the DXY, the the index, or the euro, understanding that this is a dollar trade. What's going to change it? I think when we get off of focusing on the dollar, remember with a currency – There's two sides of the trade. There's what is U.S. policy, what are U.S. rates? Oh, yeah, but then there's also what are European policies, what are European rates? And that those are being largely ignored, and everything is being focused U.S.-centric. When I think we start focusing on what are Japanese policies and rates, and what are European policies and rates, and what are British policies and rates, I then think that this dollar weakness will start to peter out. But we're not doing that right now.
0: Will the rally in stocks peter out?
3: Now, the rally in stocks is a little different animal altogether. Um, following the tax hike, uh, or excuse me, following the tax cut, analysts have aggressively hiked their earnings forecast. So for all of 2017, they're expecting about a 12 to 14 percent gain year-over-year year in earnings. For all of 2018, they're expecting another 18 percent. If you add the two together, that's 36 percent between last year and this year, just in earnings. The stock market's up 28%, maybe 29% with today's rally. Um, it hasn't even caught up to earnings. There has been no multiple expansion at this point. That will come once we get beyond a 36% rally. From the beginning of last year, we're up 29 right now. If, and this is a critical if, the analyst expectations are right. But I think what's got the market going right now is these aggressive um, increases in earnings estimates all of the companies that have been giving very positive guidance right now, you could actually make the case that after the 29% rally that we've had, the valuations are really not much different than they were 18 months ago because there's been such an aggressive uptick in earnings. It's all about that right now. The earnings story seems to be working. So I think the stock market's going to continue to work for a while.
1: All right, so let's turn to bonds. Uh, There is a lot of talk that yields are heading higher, potentially much higher. And uh, we saw Ray Dalio, the founder and the uh, head of Bridgewater, come out and say that if the 10 year Treasury yield moves up by another 100 basis points, by another one percentage point, uh, this will be the biggest uh, bond bear market since the early 80s, and it will uh, sort of affect markets accordingly. What's your take on this? Um, What he's explaining
3: there is the simple math of the bond market, a a phrase that'll make everybody fall asleep is positive convexity, that as yields get very, very low, the sensitivity that a bond has to interest rate movements, sensitivity bond price has to interest rate movements is at a record high. So when you get a 1% move in bonds right now, you get an enormous move in price. Different than when you had a 1% move in interest rates when we were at 10% 30 years ago. You got a very smaller price. Uh, He's mechanically correct on that. But now that that's said, there's only one reason that we would have a 100 basis point rise on the long end of the yield curve. And I think that that's if we had solid evidence of inflation returning. Now, the problem with that is everybody's got models and indicators, and they all say inflation is going to return. They also said that last year. They also said that three years ago. They said that five years ago. And they said that seven years ago. Uh, The models that inflation should have returned five years ago. It has not. The Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen herself, has even thrown her hands in the air and said they're not sure why inflation hasn't returned. And the data dependent Fed is now using words like guess when it comes to where inflation is going to go next because their models don't work anymore on this. If we get inflation, Then, yes, we could see a bond route. I'm fully in that camp. The problem is the indicators that say that it will return are there, but they've been there for five years, and it still hasn't returned. So maybe this is the year it's right, or maybe this is just yet another false start. So we're all back to guessing on inflation, and I don't like guessing. I'll stick – if I had to – push or pull, I think, yeah, you're going to probably see yields creep up a little bit more in the next month or two on the fear of inflation. But I think by the time you get into the later half of 2018 and into 2019, this will probably be another false start.
0: Maybe those inflation measures are just plain wrong. Maybe they need a new inflation measure. Never know.
3: I think they need need a new understanding. I think the effect of Amazon and the internet on inflation is profound. The problem is, the Fed wants to know when it's going to go up 40 basis points. We know that, and that, that the Internet and Amazon is holding it down. We just don't know by how much and how to model that yet. Well,
0: maybe they need I to think- include food and energy in their inflation uh, estimates. But uh, let me ask you about the 10-year Treasury, right? We're at 265. How much uh, further does the yield have to move in order for Jim Bianco to say, I'm done with stocks. I'm buying 10 years. Thank you very much. I'll take my 2.65%.
3: I, I think that, you know, it, it actually doesn't – one of two things. Either it moves to near 3% the 30-year th- – the 10-year, excuse me. If we get a 3% yield on that, I think that that could be damaging for the stock market and the economy if we were to get that. But I think to get that, we would need inflation. If we don't get inflation, then I think what happens is we're going to be at 265. The Fed's going to raise rates. The yield curve is going to flatten quite a bit. Uh, the yield curve has forecasted correctly every recession since 1960. We get that, yeah. a flattening yield curve. It's going to freak everybody out that a recession's coming. Yeah. That could be damaging for the market, too.
1: Jim Bianco, thank you so much for joining us. President and founder of Bianco Research, also a Bloomberg profit.
0: The shares of General Electric are down three-tenths of a percent right now, and the company has revealed that the Securities and Exchange Commission is looking into the way that it has accounted for some of its past insurance businesses as well as its revenue recognition program. Here to tell us more, Brooke Sutherland, our M&A columnist, and Bloomberg gadfly when it comes to all things GE, and Brooke can be followed on Twitter at bl. Suth. S-U-T-H. All right, B-L-South. uh, GE and the SEC. What does the SEC want to know about?
4: So they're reviewing two things is what we learned today. So they're looking into the process leading up to, um, you know, GE's announcement last week that it's taking a $6.2 billion after-tax charge on its insurance business. is paying $15 billion over seven years to shore up reserves there. Now that is a business that you know, GE largely divested between 2004 and 2006. So it's been in runoff. They haven't been issuing new businesses and they've done this review annually ever since. So then to all of a sudden see this need to, you know, put $15 billion to shore up the reserves, I think obviously raises a lot of questions. So to me, it would be more surprising if the SEC wasn't looking into this. But the interesting thing is the second part of this that they're also looking into GE's revenue recognition practice and its controls around its long-term service agreements. Now, this has been, it's a little complicated, but it's been a big sort of watch item for analysts because GE's contract assets have surged over the past couple of years. And what those are are you know, agreements that GE signs with clients, and it goes ahead and books the earnings, but not the cash, which then you know, is delivered when these service agreements are sort of completed. Now, the concern is that when those agreements were signed, the underlying sort of profitability assumptions may not have been conservative enough. When you look specifically at the power market and how significantly that's deteriorated, I think you have to wonder, you know, what were sort of the the baseline assumptions when those agreements were made and those earnings were booked. And so I think that was something analysts were very concerned about. Now the SEC is looking into it. Again, not totally surprising, but I think, you know, that's certainly going to be important to watch.
1: So frankly, it's sort of shocking that the shares aren't down more because if you start talking about potential uh, accounting I don't want to say fraud, but malfeasance over years, or at least, uh, you know, some kind of fudging of the numbers over years and years. That calls into question a lot of things about this company.
4: Sure. And I want to be clear. I mean, I don't think we're talking necessarily about fraud here, but if the baseline assumptions were too optimistic, then they have to be rethought. I mean, it. it we still have a lot to learn about this. The SEC investigators in still very early days. But yes, I mean, it certainly does raise a lot of questions. I think the reason why the stock is not down more is that people have been worried about this for a while that this issue, you know, is now sort of playing out because we have this SEC headline, but the contract assets have been something that have been, you know, sort of on analyst radar for a very long time and it's a big reason why GE had the cash shortfall that it did because again it's, you know, it's sort of booking these as earnings but not getting the cash and that's why you've seen the divergence and it's actual earnings and free cash flow so one thing
1: i'm struggling with so general electric has 126 billion dollars of debt outstanding uh they are an investment grade rated company uh in the a uh rating sphere I'm trying to understand, at what point do they get downgraded and all of a sudden those borrowing costs just surge, piling on yet another concern?
4: Another big worry for investors right now. And the rating agencies came out and they did affirm GE's credit ratings after it took that charge and in insurance. Now, I don't know if they're going to be reevaluating that as we get more information, but that is certainly something that investors and analysts are worried about. And you know I think they're concerned because a lot of times when you see companies take these charges to, to shore up reserves usually the first number is not the last number. And if you start talking about maybe GE Capital needing more reserves for the insurance business, as well as other liabilities that they have, they have the subprime mortgage business that's still laying around and some other potential issues, then you start to get into a question of, can GE Capital pay all those bills on its own? Does it start needing money from the parent company? And then that becomes a really serious concern for the credit rating. You also have to worry about you know goodwill on the Alstom acquisition that they did in 2015 is very high that acquisition is obviously disappointed could there be a goodwill impairment which you know that's a non-cash charge but that would play into credit rating concerns So,
0: all right uh, just to go back <laughs> for a second because i want to understand this in detail ge power signed a 20 recently signed a 25 year 330 million dollar maintenance service contract with the owners of a new power plant in mexico it's just south of el paso at ciudad juarez How would this contract relate to this investigation if indeed that was part of it? What would be an example of how that would work?
4: Well, if it's a new contract, that's probably less of a concern because the underlying assumptions for that probably stack up better relative to the current dynamics in the market. I think the concern is some of these contracts that you All know, right. So a legacy written, contract. So let's say you ago. had a
0: legacy contract, and you're in year ten of a twenty-five year contract. You then you made certain assumptions about how much that was worth, and now it turns out that contract is not worth that much because power markets have deteriorated. What has deteriorated?
4: So the demand for the products that GE produces has significantly dropped off, and that's you know been seen not just at GE but at Siemens. But what we're also seeing. Is very increased competition in the service markets. And now that is a concern because service is where companies like GE, Siemens, you know, really make all of their profits. I mean, this is the lucrative revenue stream, it's more predictable. But when you start having a lot of competition and low demand, then you get into a question of what prices can you really charge for those ser- services? And customers are pushing back on price, and GE, you know, having the most market share has the most to lose in that.
1: Brooke Sutherland, thank you so much. This is a fascinating issue. You really laid it out uh, tremendously well. Brooke Sutherland, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, uh, covering the industrial space, uh, talking about General Electric and a lot of questions to be answered. The SEC is looking for some answers as well. There's growing interest in investing in cryptocurrencies, as well as the technology underpinning uh, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, and that is blockchain. And here to talk to us about that is Dr. Steve Waterhouse, CEO and co-founder of Orchid Labs in San Francisco. He comes to us from Davos, Switzerland. Uh, Steve, uh, thank you so much for being with us. First, I I just want you to tell us a little bit about what Orchid Labs is.
5: Yeah, so Orchid Labs is a a new uh, blockchain-based approach to um, anti-surveillance, anti-censorship on the Internet. Um, It's an incentivized network where participants are paid to provide bandwidth to other users, um, and people pay a small amount to access the Internet in this fashion. Uh, It's funded by a number of the top venture capital firms in San Francisco and around the world. Um, and we have a star team of uh, open source experts um, from uh, the blockchain world and also uh, other areas, um, early Unix and uh, Tidia, which is jailbreaking for the iPhone.
0: But can you just tell us a little bit about exactly what it does it do? Is this just a conduit for investors in these new technologies, or is it itself participating?
5: Um well, it's, it's certainly a, a way to invest in the space, but the purpose of the system is to uh, sit above the regular internet and below um, applications such as WhatsApp and provide a, um, a new um, mechanism to access the internet in which you're not being tracked by uh, your carrier or by corporations or by the government.
1: So the idea here is basically that uh, if somebody doesn't want to be tracked, they could buy bandwidth from somebody else, use their bandwidth, Mm -hmm. and thus not be seen as themselves, but rather sort of be viewed as the other person or the other bandwidth user, correct?
5: Um, It's not so much for that purpose. It's actually more an anonymization uh, technology um, in the form of... Um, allowing people to access this, uh, not necessarily as someone else, but in our system, there's no real way of tracing um, the information back to the originating uh, requester um, by the website or the other resource uh, on the internet which they're accessing.
1: Who would be the main... And thus
5: also... Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to say, who who would be the main user of this?
5: Well, I think obviously there's uh, countries like China, which have very strong... Uh, markets for this, where there's heavy surveillance of the population. Um, the Middle East, uh, where we have you know very significant human rights issues now, um, is also a very strong market for this. Um, but increasingly, with things like net neutrality being overturned, uh, the U.S. is becoming um, a major opportunity area, too.
1: And who would be the provider of the bandwidth?
5: Well, it could be you. Um, You could set up your computer and run one of our clients and uh, provide that. You could potentially do it with your iPhone in a smaller capacity. Um, Or people could use uh, server farms to provide this kind of capability. And countries such as Greenland, which have incredibly strong data privacy laws, um, are targets for data centers like this. And we're in talks with a number of people, including VPN providers, who want to partner with us to provide this enhanced capability to their customers.
1: And how do you make money?
5: So, our system is actually free um, from us, in other words. Uh, People pay other people in the network to get that bandwidth allocation. Um, Our approach is a little bit like the creators of Bitcoin, um, who we still don't know, um, or Ethereum, in that we create a new currency, um, which we believe, as the network uh, increases in usage, might drive in value. I can't obviously provide investment advice here, but uh, that is um, the belief of a system, just like currencies, when they increase in utility, um, become more valuable.
0: What backs the currency?
5: Uh, well, what backs the U S dollar,
0: the full faith and credit of the U S government and its ability to tax its citizens.
5: Very good. Um, economics 101, right? Um, I mean, we could argue for a while about what does intrinsic value mean? And if anything really does, um, but, uh, you know, I think since we moved back past the, the gold standard, um, and I'm not an economist, I'm more of a computer scientist, then uh, gold, which really doesn't have that much intrinsic value either, um, was a capability to back things. Uh, what backs our network is utility, just like the backing of Bitcoin or Ethereum.
0: In using these new types of uh, currencies, uh, would you have to register with a government if indeed a transaction took place outside the jurisdiction of, let's say, uh, Greenland?
5: Um, no. In our system, there's no way to trace who's using the network at all. Uh, we don't keep records. We can't be subpoenaed to release those records unlike VPN companies. Um, and that's basically the whole idea of the system is maybe we should have a system in which and a world in which information is freely accessible and in which it's not there's no capability to track people maybe that should be the default
0: all right well uh, interesting stuff thanks very much for joining us steve waterhouse co-founder of orchid labs on uh, the future perhaps of a uh, blockchain uh, technology and cryptocurrencies joining us from davos switzerland